What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Conspiranormal. Hello, everybody. Happy Mardi Gras. It is our Conspiranormal Mardi Gras celebration. <laughs> I know that's a little weird for um, Conspiranormal to be doing any kind of like celebration or especially Mardi Gras, but uh, here we are. The first. And- the first annual Conspiranormal Mardi Gras episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The first annual Conspiranormal Mardi Gras episode. Considering that Mardi Gras, for the most part, this year is canceled because of COVID, we figured we're going to do like a whole like Conspiranormal Mardi Gras special, just kind of how we did the Halloween special, except that this one may be a little bit shorter. And we're going to talk about uh, the history of Mardi Gras. And we're going to talk about some of the interesting kind of esoteric um, things that go into Mardi Gras as well. So I'm wearing a mask, which really, you know, goes in well with my, this is the, uh, the jester mask. And uh, Sergio, what do you have on there? I don't know. Just a mask. Just a mask. Okay. There's no, no real significance to it. It's got the same checkered patterns up here. And I'm sure this is going to be interesting to listen to uh, if you're listening to this on the audio only version, but it is definitely meant to be viewed because we're going to be providing a lot of cool visual accompaniment into the symbolism and mysticism of what Mardi Gras has become in America. Yes, make sure that you watch the watch the video. It's my little okay but you wouldn't see that if you were if you were actually listening to it so what are we going to speak about tonight 
Well, I just wanted to kind of start with um, some personal anecdotes. Um, you know, neither of us really uh, comes from a, a cultural background that that celebrates this stuff. Yes. Um, but um, as I was getting, you know, really interested in the late 19th century, early 20th century American mysticism and the golden age of fraternity and things like that, I, I started noticing a, a whole lot in common um, with a lot of the pageantry and costume and symbolism in Mardi Gras, as you find in other things like Freemasonry and uh, kind of was wondering, you know, where that, where that goes, there's gotta be some kind of, some kind of connection, I thought. And um, when we went down to Pensacola in 2019, uh, we got a little bit of taste of an actual, you know, Mardi Gras street, uh, which was 12th night. So if you want to tell them about that a little bit, Adam. Yeah. So when we were in Florida, we went to uh, Fort Walton Beach and to Dustin. And you guys may have heard us tell this story before, but to those of you that are new, we um, ended up, I wanted to show Surfiel Pensacola, and we also wanted to go to Gulf Breeze because that's where a lot of UFO sightings had taken place in the 80s. And Gulf Breeze is literally right next to Pensacola. It's like uh, right across the little Pensacola Bay there that they have. And this was on, I want to say, January the 6th. And so we went down there and I was like, well, let's just go into Pensacola because it's kind of a neat little city. I'd been there before, um, real old dates back from, uh, the 1700s, I believe, I think first settled by the Spanish and, um, we end up at this weird Mardi Gras. Like we had no idea what was even going on. And there were a lot of people downtown in the little square area, which the last time I had been there, there was really nobody there. And we went, we went over there and um, there was, we asked people what was going on and they said, Oh, well, it's Mardi Gras this year. This is this year's Mardi Gras. And we're both thinking to ourselves, being from Tennessee, we're just like, well, is it Mardi Gras like a little later on? Is it in February? Like it's early January. Why are these people here doing this? And we come to find out later on that uh, this was actually a 12th night celebration. This was not technically Mardi Gras, even though the native Pensacolans refer to it as a Mardi Gras celebration. Right. But 12th night is actually the beginning of the carnival season that lasts until Mardi Gras. And I'll I'm going to kind of go into a little bit later about how and why that is, um, how that's kind of, how that's kind of set up. But, um, that was basically it. We, we walked around. There were a lot of, uh, a lot of, there was a parade. There was a lot of floats. Um, I think we actually, the parade was the next day but we got to see like everybody on their floats and everything like that. We uh, were sitting outside this restaurant that was doing the crowning of the King and Queen, which was interesting. And that looks like it was like Knights of Columbus that were, that were doing that. 
and so from that point we were just like well this is this is real interesting some of the symbolism some of the symbology uh a lot of it is stuff that we kind of esoteric kind of stuff that we've talked about before in the show and so Serfiel here started really looking into mardi gras and the history of it and some of the roots of these societies that are called these crews with a k that do these um mardi gras events and who they are which some of them we're going to talk about uh in this episode too so and since uh we can show you guys for the visual um for the 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 video version of this i'm going to share some of that video here so let's check that out Can you hear it? Yeah, I can hear it. Some of you guys may have seen this before. This is the Mardi Gras slash 12th night celebration in Pensacola. Sorry, it looks like video is a little jerky. Yeah, that's okay. These are some of the, this is the, this is actually here, the crowning of the king and queen. These are these guys with the nice floofy uh, hats. That's uh, Knights of Columbus, right? Is everyone doing the sign of the cross? Yeah. yeah. I think there's a couple of, pri there's a priest there and a guy with a cowboy hat behind him. Here's some of their mystic societies. You've got the Viking mystics. Yeah. Like I said, we had no absolutely no idea this was even going on at the time. So we just kind of just really just like stumbled into this. The Mystic yeah. Mafia. Yeah. Look Mystic at this guy. Mafia, yeah. <laughs> this guy's an outfit. And I just wanted to come here and show you the historic square here. You're the King Ferdinand VII. And it's we ended up in Mardi Gras. I don't know how, which we actually figured out tonight. Actually, tomorrow is twelfth night, which is twelve days from Christmas. Okay, so that is um, that is the twelfth night celebration. Yeah, so that's how we got started on this whole rabbit hole. Uh, that provided the inspiration for one of our Patreon tiers when we reorganize our Patreon into yep. secret societies for the $10 level. We created the Mystic Crew, as you can see behind us. And uh, so we wanted to give you guys a little bit of insight, too, into the Myst Mystic Crew. Uh, for everyone who doesn't know, every month we have a hangout styled as a uh, yeah, styled as a ball. And uh, we have special guests. We have, we're going to be having presentations, all kinds of cool stuff you can check out. Uh, the next uh, 
The next one is coming up here on the, what is it? The 19th, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. On the 19th. So if you get into Patreon, become a $10 patron before that, you'll be able to join us. There's going to be a presentation. Uh, there might be two presentations and some special guests. So we hope you guys join us. But in that spirit, we want to touch on some of this um, Mardi Gras mysticism. Okay. So do we want to start? go ahead and start with the history or you want to start uh, with some of the, your material? Well, I really want to start with the idea of the carnivalesque because um, that is really what all this is about. And the manifestation of the carnivalesque um, gives the, these particular celebrations their flavor. Um, the concept was really coined and uh, articulated by uh, Mikhail Bakhtin in his writings about Dostoevsky uh, in uh, Problems of Dostoevsky's po Poetics and the Rebellious in His word, World, excuse me, um, he characterized the carnivalesque as into four categories of the carnival sense of the world, as he called it. Uh, number one in this is the familiar and free interaction between people. Uh, Carnival often brought the unlikeliest of people together and encouraged the interaction and free expression of themselves in unity. Uh, two, eccentric behavior. Unacceptable behavior is welcomed and accepted in Carnival, and one's natural behavior can be revealed without consequences. Number three, carnivalistic. I don't even know how to say this. Do you know? <laughs> Mesaliances. The familiar and free format of Carnival allows everything that may normally be separated to reunite, heaven, hell, the young and the old, etc. I mean, our French is pretty terrible, but it might be something like May Alliance or something like that. Okay, that's good. And then uh, profanation. In Carnival, the strict rules of piety and respect for official notions of the sacred are stripped of their power. Blasphemy, obscenity, debasings, bringing down to earth, celebration rather than condemnation of earthly and body-based. Um, and I think that's what Carnival itself actually means, um, the roots of the actual world, of course, carnal, uh, you know, means these these base uh, desires or feelings, and carnival means to to uplift them or hold them up. So it's really a celebration of of the carnal. Um, ways we see this, we see elements of uh, the the trickster phenomenon that we're always talking about as it relates to all these paranormal right. phenomenons. Right. Uh, the trickster has a really big place in Carnival. Um, and ideas about um, this liminal time, of course, this is when the you know sun is, is symbolically dying and being reborn. Uh, so you have this liminal time where uh, concepts of a trickster figure like a Lord of Misrule or other figures like that are are uh, in charge and basically turning things upside down. Um, there's a lot of subversive potential in this, of course, uh, in medieval societies, you know, we had uh, the, the servants and serfs being served by their lords and things like this. Um, 
So it was really a time for the people at the bottom of society to, to let loose. Right. And I'm going to get into uh, Lupercalia. Yeah. And just mention briefly Saturnalia here. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll, we'll explore how, how this, all this carna carnivalesque was uh, that was in Mardi Gras and in celebrations of Mardi Gras in the early United States uh, was really um, a lot of the elites feared the chaos of it. And it was really co-opted and kind of transformed into more orderly parades and goings on uh, with the elites kind of crowning themselves as the kings and queens of, of these festivities. Um, I've got this really great book. We've been trying to find this author named Ann J. Pond. And she talks a lot about the origins in um, in Mobile and points out the easy, easy adaptability of masonry to the carnivalesque. And we'll explore some of that stuff later as well. Yeah, just a side note, um, if you want to um, try to get in touch with Ann Pond, we don't know. I tried to send an email and there's actually a number to text on there to get those books. And like the actual link to the bookstore is actually gone, but I think you got that off of Amazon or, or, or something. Yeah. Lulu. Um, Lulu. So um, if you try to text that number, you're going to get a very angry nine-year-old. <laughs> don't do it. Just going to let you know, don't do it. We don't know where Ann Pond is or if this person is even still alive. So, uh, but Serfiel has found some valuable things about it. And I pulled a lot of information from this book called, which, you know, is the colors are clashing, of course. But uh, let me just turn my, I'm going to turn my, um, I'm going to turn my green screen off real quick. So you guys can see what this looks like. I think I have a picture of that, Adam. Okay. This is this is Mardi Gras as it was by Robert Talent. And he talks a lot about this is written in 1947. So he talks a lot about um how uh Mardi Gras was at that time period and then also in the century before and goes into a in part two, which is pretty valuable information about um Mardi Gras and how it occurred and that's what i'm gonna be talking about and there's the spine it's a neat little you know tableau of the uh you know there's the the little king and all that stuff and the sphinx and all the weird kind of egyptian imagery but uh just to guys show you that what we where we pick we're picking up some of our information right and then again Cowbellion, Mother of the Mystics by Andre Pond. I was a little disappointed I couldn't find other books that were listed places but had no way to be purchased. Um, one in particular was called um, I think Masons and the Mystics or something like that, but mm -hmm. that's the only one I could find. All right, so do, you want, do, we, do we want to go into the history of Mardi Gras? And yeah, let's, let's go into the the ancient origins, because I mean, similar celebrations at this time of year are are worldwide and you know across cultures, um, and they incorporate these ideas of parading and costume, 
that are you know as old as as old as man, and of course those uh, developed in ancient European into Roman times and uh, through Christianization, you know, to get what we have today. Okay. Before we do that real quick, let's just kind of define Mardi Gras, what that means in case you don't know, you know, maybe you're from another country or you're just from another part of the, of the United States that doesn't really celebrate it. Kind of like ours. Um, Mardi Gras means fat Tuesday in French, as I understand it. Uh, fat Tuesday is also known as Shrove Tuesday. It is all a part of the liturgical calendar, the West, especially the Western church liturgical calendar. It's based off of that. So it's all, and it's the day before Ash Wednesday, which, you know, Protestants and Catholics both do this. You get the ash on the, on the forehead. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent, which ends right about a week before Easter on Palm Sunday, and then the next Sunday you have Easter. So Mardi Gras is actually dependent on the date of, uh, the, the date of Easter, okay? So sometimes it's in March, sometimes it's in February. It just depends on where Easter um, comes in. Um, so this year it is on February 16th, I believe which uh, is a couple of days after we're going to release this. And um, so that is this, this year. Okay. In ancient Roman times, you had two festivals that are very similar to Mardi Gras. And Serfiel mentioned this just briefly. You had Saturnalia, which was really uh, the time around what we would now call as Christmas. Okay, that's Saturnalia. Um, you had the same kind of thing where like the ma the the servants would would become the masters, the kind of like role re reversal stuff. Talent in this book actually talks more about Lupercalia being much more the basis for Mardi Gras, and Lupercalia was also a Roman holiday. It comes from the word for wolf, which was very important in roman culture um and it was this like big debaucherous festival that lasted just like saturnalia several days and i'm going to read a little bit about how um talent describes this okay Perhaps the first account of such a celebration that possessed a definite pattern tradition is Ovid's description of the celebration of spring by the Arcadian shepherds, which they sacrificed a goat, ate its flesh, and made whips of its skin, with which at sunset priests bedawed with goat's blood and paint, lashed the people, male and female, naked and joys, through the streets of their village. That was 5,000 years ago, but the date of the event was comparable to Shrove Tuesday to the present calendar of the Christian church. But even then, the motive for the festival had already changed from its original one, and it was no longer fertility of the soil or an abundant crop that was sought, but the remission of sins and the fruitfulness of women. Carnival came early to ancient Rome. The Greek priests who built their temples there were called Luperci, and historians from Plutarch to Given have referred to the Lupercalia, that mad carnival that soon degenerated into an orgy of lust and pain. It was now a part of a formalized religion, just as Mardi Gras is in actuality a part of a religion. 
with its priests, temples, devotees, and elaborate rites that lasted for months with a climax that was Rome's most popular holiday, even as Mardi Gras is the most popular holiday in New Orleans. The Febura, the goatskin whips, were still in use, but this portion of the rite had become so widespread that there were no longer sufficient priests to serve the celebrants, so the Febura was distributed among the people that they might flog each other and themselves until they were purified of sin. Uh, this is important too. Gradually, as Rome became wealthy, grand, and gaudy, and as the centuries passed, all semblance of spirituality vanished from the Lupercalia. It became a time devoted to the circus, the gladiatorial arena, and to private and public debauchery of the most extreme sensuality. The priests of Gallii had arrived, those emasculated worshippers of Attis, who sacrificed their genitals to their god and who wore phallic images about their necks and practiced male prostitution as a religious rite. Into the Lupercalia was introduced the costume, and the first maskers were female impersonators, men who appeared on the street, dressed as women, and offered themselves as women to male celebrants. The costumes and masks worn on the carnival floats in New Orleans often have a strange sexless character. It may be wondered how many members of the crews have given any thought to the matter of what might have been their origin. So this was kind of the, this was the beginning. You could you can really see the beginning of the big celebration that is the carnival time and right. which culminates in Mardi Gras. You have all these old folk traditions, but then with the, with Rome, you really have these giant festivals and parades organized and, you know, financed by the state. Yes. And so this, this stays around for quite a while. Uh, around the year 600, um, he says here, then about the year 600 when Pope Gregory the Great invented the calendar we still use, that's the Gregorian calendar, uh, he fixed the present fluctuating date of Ash Wednesday as the first day of Lent and formally established the day before Shrove Tuesday as the day that would climax three days of feasting and festival after which Christians were to turn from earthly delights to prayer and to repairs upon the soul. And that is the period known as Lent. So the idea is you're getting all your rocks out, out uh, before Lent, where you have to give something up for the six weeks until Easter. Kind of like an expansion and a contraction. Yes. Yes, very much so. So this becomes a, uh, a Christian holiday, um, mostly uh, by the time you get to the Protestant Reformation. This becomes much more of kind of like a, um, a, a Catholic holiday. Uh, there's other, you know, like in uh, Protestantism, the time of like Christmas, like in England, would have been a much more time of like celebration. This is why kind of like the Puritans really tried to clamp down on it. Um, Louis the 14th in France kind of makes it, it, it's makes it into, um, its own thing, uh, and puts in a lot of kind of like the whole idea of, uh, French culture in all this. Uh, I think Serfiel is pulling up some, some things here. Um, he describes this is the time of in the in the time of Louis the Fourteenth, which is late seventeenth century, early eighteenth century. He says during the season, French society was at its best and most brilliant. 
and the spectacular balls and street processions in which the bluff gras that's the i understand i guess the the fat cow mm -hmm. adorned with garlands and flowers and ridden by a child dressed as cupid and grotesque parades of huge and fantastic paper mache animals and monsters took part may have been a major factor in kindling those fires that had smoldered so long with the revolution came a banning of all masks costumes and mardi gras the promenade of the buff gras was the disguise of the person and face returned beneath the dignity of a citizen all right so from this um we get and i saw that you mentioned this in the notes i'll go ahead and say that the iberville the um french explorer who uh finds the mouth of the Mississippi in 1699. He actually finds uh, a place where he rests. He finds a bayou there that he calls the uh, Pont du Mardi Gras. Mm -hmm. And since obviously New Orleans is founded late, a little later on than that um, and settled primarily by the French, uh, Mardi Gras is a huge holiday there because of that French tradition and primarily because of the Creole tradition, Creole meaning um, white uh, native-born French speakers. The and the, the the mythology is that they supposedly had the first Mardi Gras celebration in um, in New Orleans there when they located the mouth of Mississippi, but it's, there's nothing that uh, Confirms that's the truth. It's more just legend. I want to read a little description here about the, that he gives in the book about kind of like the chaos that was Mardi Gras at the time and how it almost did. It almost did not start to happen because of uh, the, the major problems that were had by uh, so much chaos. Um, so this is about Gallatin Street. Gallatin Street is a street in New Orleans. But Gallatin Street was a country garden compared with an uptown section on and around Gerard Street known as the Swamp. It was a boast of the Swamp, but not for 20 years had an officer of the law dared to set foot in the section and that the half dozen murders that occurred every week were never investigated, never even reported. Bodies were, as a matter of custom, left where they fell in the mud streets or on a saloon floor until the odors drove the inhabitants to toss them into the river. A man could obtain a drink, a woman, and a bed for the night of six cents in this neighborhood, although it was certain if he had any other money on him, you would be gone when he awoke in the morning, if he awoke at all. Women in the swamp prostituted themselves for a few pennies. All right, so this is this area. Well, during Mardi Gras, they would cut... Uh, they were cut loose. So there was really little that the swamp could do to commemorate Mardi Gras that could be counted upon to provide additional excitement. So on this day, they would often wander in large numbers to Gallatin Street to exhibit their superior prowess, to tear the Gallatin Street dives to pieces and to maim the inhabitants. These attacks and forays were not taken calmly by Gallatin Street, and when all had quieted on Ash Wednesday mornings, the law, who had not dared interfere, would notice a larger-than-usual number of corpses floating down the Mississippi River. 
<laughs> it was perhaps poetic justice that later Gallatin Street displaced the swamp as the toughest section in New Orleans, and that both sides are now among the most harmless parts of the city, although both maintained something of their reputations until after the turn of the present century. All right. I'm going to show a picture real quick here. Okay. Oh, I was just showing there's there's some of the what the usual maskers would look like, I think. So uh yeah, from the time of the nineteenth of the uh, from the time of the nineteenth century. So yeah. Okay, I'll I'll add this here. Um this is a depiction, uh, artist depiction of Lupercalia. Okay, there's the you can see the whips there. Yeah. The yeah. Pembra. Okay. It's a it's a real good time. Yeah, looks like it. So there were some, um, you know, ongoing traditions of having balls and things like that for the the um, upper crust of society, uh, but you did have a, a good amount of of mixing as well. Um, you know, during these early Mardi Gras celebrations, you really did still have some of that that leveling spirit that was, you know, goes back to ancient times. Um, I think as as these places got progressively more uh, Protestant and more um, uh, uh, Anglo-Americans from the North began to come to these areas to be uh, cotton brokers and things like that, uh, you saw the elites change and uh, attitudes towards Mardi Gras start to change as well, especially against that chaotic nature. Um, I know that in in the north there is a lot of this these types of um, celebrations as well, but most of them revolved around the twelve days of Christmas and New Year's. And during this time, you know, we we still have we have what's left over from that in the uh, what they call the Mummers Parade, I believe, in in Philadelphia, and the Mummers is part of that that ancient tradition of masking in the streets uh, but because of the the quaker dominance uh in that area the mummery was suppressed for quite a long time right again going back to kind of more of the protestant areas much more celebrating like the time of christmas that time was much more important a time of celebration we don't really get like our kind of like modern Christmas until probably like the late 19th century. Right. Like commercialization of it before then Christmas is like the time of ghost stories. It's a time of time of parties. I mean, it still is, but not quite the kind of parties that, that, you know, <laughs> that are kind of, uh, kind of like more like Mardi Gras period. Right. Well, so I think what's really fascinating about this stuff is that it's a, uh, you know, you see all these different social forces fighting over these the meaning of these holidays and trying to reinvent or regenerate them in their own image. Uh, just the way that you would see, um, just the way that holy sites throughout time have been um, appropriated by new religions, new political orders, etc. Uh, you have this 
constant, uh, especially in the Americas, you know, you have this constant change in what holidays mean. The holidays as we know them today are, and we celebrate them in the Americas are, are pretty much, you know, very, very recent incarnations of them. Okay, so do we want to talk about the Calbellian Society? Yeah, so uh, the beginning of the the beginning of the cruise. Yeah, so we've kind of laid the foundation that uh, you know, while there was um like these different traditions of mummery, of balls, of uh, masking in the streets, of the uh, the Christmas associated. Uh, traditions of of going around and and begging your neighbors or caroling and things like that. Um, you know the increasingly Protestant elites in these cities, uh, these port cities, uh, they kind of like look down on a lot of the more chaotic nature of uh, of these the Mardi Gras traditions of the Creoles. Uh, especially the, you know, mixing of classes and, and even races. And so uh, you, you start to see a lot of, a lot of changes in these societies. What was happening was a lot of young single men were coming to places like Mobile in New Orleans and trying to make their fortune with uh, cotton brokering and things like that and shipping. And um, so you've, especially places like Mobile become uh, a lot different demographically uh, than, uh, than New Orleans. And these influences from Mobile and the changes to Mardi Gras and the Mardi Gras traditions really go on to, to affect New Orleans and change Mardi Gras into what we know it as today. Uh, so in 1704 in Mobile, uh, there's a Frenchman, N Nicolas Langlois. Uh, he founds the Society de Saint Louis, which was a, uh, a Mardi Gras society, but not in the mystic crew sense. Um, but it isn't until somewhere between 1829 and 1830, we have the establishment of something that's called the Calbellian de Reikian Society. And I'm going to share something from that. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Just give me one minute here. Okay, so we have an emblem there of them. And I think as you can see, we have a introduction of a lot of familiar symbolism from a certain fraternal society that is quite uh, quite popular in America. But at this time, uh, we are dealing with the fallout of the Morgan affair and the uh, an anti-Freemasonry and the anti-Freemason party. Uh, in America. So what's yeah, going on in like the 1830s, 1840s, that era? Yeah. yeah. So what's going on in Mobile is that um, you've got all these young single merchants who are actually taking these, um, the, these traditions around New Year's and Christmas that I talked about before uh, that were suppressed up there by a lot of these really puritanical um, you know, religious types in, in government. Uh, but they take, they take what's left of these traditions and are able to celebrate them freely in these more liberal places like Mobile and New Orleans. Um, so this guy named Michael Kraft, who is a cotton broker, uh, he uh, gets together with a bunch of similar young men um, you know, um, um, recent recent um, immigrants to the area, and they start having these rowdy parades on New Year's uh, under the banner of this Calvellian de Reikian society. Um, that evolves into a secret society, and seems to borrow a lot of stuff from from Freemasonry. Uh, this was at a time when I think there was it says there was no Freemasonic active Freemasonic lodge in Mobile at the time. So this was a way to fraternalize and uh, you know increase their standing in Mobile society. Um, as far as the traditions of from where they were from, um, this is from Anjay Pond's book talking about how holiday traditions that were popular in the Eastern United States in the first half of the 19th century included Califumpian bands, Sharivari, Fantasticals, Masquerades, all of which were forms of mummery. 
Each of the first Calbellions, the men who organized the first parades in Mobile, had experienced at least one and probably more of these in their youth. In the Northeast, this was the traditional way to celebrate the holidays. Michael Kraft had no specific design on recreating any particular one of these holiday customs, but his antics in the early 1830s blended some of these together, creating something similar but unique. Kraft and his comrades must have also felt a sense of guilty pleasure in the freedoms they experienced in Mobile. They were in their early 20s and had plenty of money, alcohol was abundant, and there were no laws restricting holiday celebrations or noise making in the streets, as there were in many of the northern states, including Pennsylvania and New York. So that begins, but what is different about what they're doing is that um, these are more established people of the society and the authorities know that um, the authorities know they're the, you know, the quote unquote right people. Uh, they don't, you know, really have to worry about them. They even give notices to the authorities in some of their advertisements, like, uh, you know, to leave us alone. We're just the good old boys kind of thing. Um, what came from the Calbellians and influenced the entire nation was a notion that traditional street festivity could be condoned and enjoyed if it were organized and restrained. But the spread of cultural influences between all of the major American ports was like a web of constant interaction and tenuous balances of power and influence. The holiday traditions among the people of all these ports overlapped and blended, adapting to the needs and priorities of each individual community. So uh, she's just talking about how how that happened. And this is going to give birth to later on what we know of now as the cruise, which there are several of them at this point in time. Yeah, this is going to give birth to the, to the cruise system uh, in, in New Orleans. Uh, just a second. I wanted to read another note here. I thought I would point out too, while you're doing that, that uh, one of the things that get, is going on in New Orleans at this time, um, of course, all throughout the season from Twelfth Night all the way to Mardi Gras itself, you have these balls. Okay. Just about like, it seemed like it was just about every sing single night and they were organized by, by whoever. Some of the most popular ones were these things called quadroon balls which was people, these women that were considered to be like a quarter African-American. They were like, basically they were like setting themselves to be like the mistresses of, of rich men. So that's something that um, he talks about, talent talks about in the Mardi Gras. So that when you hear something about like the quadroon balls, this is just kind of this, what is going on at the time. It's like general tableau of what is happening. Yeah, it's in this early 19th century New Orleans. Yeah, so there's a it's really a melting pot and then uh, as the Americans come in it's really a melting pot of different Europeans too and uh, that creates conflict the the elites are changing, you know, the creoles view the Americans as kind of barbaric. All they care about is money, they don't like the finer things. You know, they were uh, the the creole people definitely had those stereotypical 
you know, Franco cultural characteristics about enjoying life, liking the finer things, etc. cetera. Um, I wanted to leave the Calbellians on a note. Um, so the, the origin of them is unknown. What's weird is that there's no surviving newspapers as to the, uh, the years immediately following what were perhaps the first Calbellian, uh, Calbellians as they call them. Um, but uh, Pond also says that the Cabellians started in 1830 or 1831 with a loosely organized assemblage of young men in various homespun costumes, playing music and frolicking through the streets while others looked on with fascination. In the industrializing Northeast, this kind of loud and typically drunken merrymaking was well known, but considered the purview of the working class or of young boys. Dangerously disrupting the orderly environment, they were repressed by authorities and criticized by the elite. In Mobile, however, the elite themselves usurped the concept of the festive procession, formalized it, and organized it with an orderly association of men akin to the Freemasons. With this in place and officially sanctioned by the mayor himself, they could do just about anything they pleased on their one special pre-designated day of the year. Not that the authorities of Mobile were all that strict anyway, and this was a small but quickly growing community. The total population at the time was little over 3,000, even larger during the winter and early springs when the port was at its busiest and the few city guards maintained little control. But in Mobile, the Calbellians made revelry respectable, and as Michael's generation of young merchants eventually became the city's leaders, the organization they created grew into in both extravagance and popularity. So we really have this you know, these, these popular celebrations becoming, um, becoming an elite thing. And this, in this melting pot of cultures, you have this new um, primarily Anglo elite wanting to kind of uh, get control of things and do things in their, in their own way, which is, which is really fascinating. Yeah, this becomes something of a contention uh, between the Creoles and between the people that are coming into New Orleans. Should point out, New Orleans becomes a part of the United States in 1803. Louisiana Purchase, all that kind of stuff. So you've got kind of you've got this real clash of cultures going on, and it seemed to me as from like reading this book that um, it was interesting that. Americans were kind of like referred to as Irishmen by the, by the <laughs> French, by the French Creoles. So that is, that is interesting. They kind of had their own kind of like all their own kind of like different morality. Um, so there was a lot of culture clash. So the, the, uh, the origin myth of the Calbellians and where that name comes from. Yeah. I was about to ask you that. That's is that a strange name. Yeah, so so Michael Kraft and others are um, either you know doing some kind of bar hopping or, or running around through the streets drunkenly, and either break into or happen across a um, hardware store where they grab rakes and cowbells, and I think set cowbells on top of the rakes, and uh, he supposedly proclaims the Calbillion, the Rickian society um, as kind of a 
a, a nod or mockery to things like masonry or yeah yeah it's a joke it's kind of yeah. yeah yeah it's um, kind of it's it's kind of like the 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 discordians in a way right but, but i but ironically this starts a process that ends up creating actual um secret societies you know that that have much of the the same function um it's noted that the heavy symbolism really doesn't come in until uh until later i think in the in the 1840s but the first i mean like we live in this modern day where you know all these people are analyzing movies and the super bowl and looking for anything semi uh, pagan or occult you know as proofs of some kind of grand elite conspiracy to bewitch us but i mean like the first actual parade with floats that the Calbellians had in 1840 was under the theme of heathen gods and goddesses. So think if there's like, if we had an official like state sanctioned, um, you know, parade or something like that in like modern America, people would just be freaking out. Yeah. People would be freaking out. Yeah. <laughs> we already just had the Super Bowl. It already got all the, the different kind of um, ideas that happened there. So, you know, so, so do we want to, okay, go on. Well, I just want to say that it becomes more of a, um, it becomes more of a spectacle and, um, and Pond says in early 19th century, the carnival in Europe involved informal gatherings created by the people themselves for their own amusement as they had for centuries. Street processions were spontaneous, loosely organized, and involved anyone who chose to participate. It has been said that the European carnival was of the people, while the United States developed a different tradition after 1830, a Mardi Gras organized for the people, which developed as a traditional street parade, came under the control of a secretive fraternal society. Yes. Uh, Talent actually does mention uh, Calbellian de Reikin Society. He mentions them briefly, but uh, they journeyed to New Orleans in 1852 for Mardi Gras paraded in the streets with tremendous success. Uh, he says there's also an organization on the march that's called the Company of Bedouins, uh, which was also interesting. So do we want to talk about how the where the crews, like kind of like the timeline of the crews and where they're coming in? Yeah, so these these the relationship between people in in Mobile and New Orleans, especially the merchants, is is really tight. So um, they were actually, you know, kind of in, in competition at one point. We we now think of you know New Orleans New Orleans is just you know massive compared to Mobile in uh, influence and size, but but at the time, you know, they they were kind of in this competition and friendly competition, but a lot of the the elites were transitory and moved between both places. Um, the economies were, were pretty were pretty in sync. Um, so the uh, the the place where what we know of as the, the Mystic Crew system really starts in New Orleans is this uh, Mystic Crew of Comus in eighteen fifty 
a man named Joseph Ellison, who was a Mobile Cowbellion, is one of six Mobilians who moved to New Orleans and organized the Crescency's first mystic society. Uh, so that was the mystic crew of Comus. And Comus is Bacchus' son. I guess he really represents a kind of uh, hedonism and drunken revelry to the point of unconscious, I think it's it's referred to as. Fascin fascinating stuff. I didn't know who Comus was. Uh, the son of Bacchus. The son of Bacchus. Yeah. So Bacchan Bacchanalia. Yeah, I'm going to read from Talent's book. Uh, in the 1850s, some of these friends settled in New Orleans, first missing the New Year's Eve celebrations. They organized the New Orleans version of the Cowbellions. And then some of them, observing the vulgarities into which Mardi Gras had sunk, decided to regenerate the holiday by demonstrating what might be done by using the Cowbellions type of parade and ball. A meeting was called in the rear room of an uptown drugstore some months before the Mardi Gras of 1857 and six of the Mobilians gathered and prepared a very select list of names chosen from the leaders of the uptown American portion of the city. A little later, 19 men met in the club room above the old gym saloon in Upper Royale Street. Carl M. Churchill was elected captain and Joseph Ellison was made chairman of the dress committee. The name of Milton's Comus was adopted and then Ellison was sent to Mobile to secure the costumes suitable to the subject of the initial celebration. And so this initial celebration, I can find it, has a theme I think that would uh, scare people even more. Uh, and this was adopted from a previous uh, Calbellion parade. So this is from the Daily Crescent newspaper after the first Crew of Comus uh, parade. It says, they came, led by the festive Comus, high on his royal seat, and Satan, high on a hill, far blazing as a mound, with pyramids and towers from diamond quarries hewn, and rocks of gold, the palace of great Lucifer, mm. followed by devils large and devils small, with horns and devils with tails and devils without. There were only two floats in that parade, one of which rode Comus and the other occupied by Satan. The rest of the maskers walked because of course, <laughs> or behind the cars. But these were the first real floats New Orleans had ever seen. And it was the first parade by torchlight to be held in the city. Um, nice. And that night at the Gaiety Theater, there was perhaps the most spectacular masquerade ball in the city's history, in which the demon actors in Milton's Paradise Lost was presented with four gorgeous tableaux representing the Tartarus, the Expulsion, Conference of Satan and Beelzebub, and Pandemonium. There followed dancing, and then the members of this crew gathered for a banquet that lasted until morning. Thus was the precedent for all future carnival balls established. So, they, they yeah. had, yeah, they had Satan <laughs> up there with them. Satan and Comus. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, yeah. 
that was like uh, yeah that, i'm sure that that's uh I, i'm sure even at the time that might have been a little uh controversial yeah and with with those kind of um societal conflicts going on i mean uh the i think you know the creoles already you know had a lot of issues with all these incoming americans but then for the the americans to organize something like that man that's that's kind of wild yeah no doubt no doubt so uh, we we have the uh basically I, I wrote down a little timeline here the crew of comus comes around about like 1858 okay before that is this is in new orleans okay calbellian society their first parade is 1852 so this is pre-civil war another thing that's interesting about uh mardi gras is that it is not held during times of war so when the civil war came and new orleans was actually occupied fairly early um they were not they did not have mardi gras uh, I'm going to talk a little. I'm going to talk a little bit about like some of the political uh, yeah. stuff surrounding Mardi Gras, uh, especially in Reconstruction, which is the period after the Civil War. 1872, the Knights of Momus. Okay, uh, I thought 1874, uh, the um, parade for Momus was the Coming Races. I thought that was an interesting, an interesting title. Um, for the I thought that was an interesting title for that. All these different like little characters that they that they have. Um. So yeah, that's kind of like a brief timeline. A little later on in the 19th century, you also have Proteus, which is another one. Um. And I'll read a little something about that later but that's kind of a little timeline about what we're kind of like what we're dealing with yeah and so all this starts before the civil war and the civil war kind of puts it on pause um when it when it returns you know a lot of the authorities the new union occupying authorities are really worried that it will be used for you know some some terrorism or guerrilla stuff um, I believe uh, some government officials got murdered. Um, so they were really nervous about that. So suspended a lot of them. A lot of the first ones to return to New Orleans, I think, were considered um, were really more for the occupying Union troops. They got to celebrate, whereas I think people still uh, loyal to the Confederacy and said that they kind of uh, chilled out uh, in Mobile. A guy named uh, Joe Kane uh, in 1868. He he re, he's considered the one who restarted Mardi Gras. He dressed up as a as a Native American uh, Chickasaw chief. He says, and they um, they paraded and taunted the the Union. Uh, most of these were ex Confederate veterans. Uh, they they taunted a lot of the the occupying Union forces and. Um, there was also something called the Lost Cause Minstrels was the name of a, a band associated with them. So you start to have these post-Civil War conflicts. I know in New Orleans also uh, you have the uh, the White Crescent League and a lot of the, the tensions between the uh, Reconstruction governments 
and people loyal to the Confederacy or sympathy of lost cause and people, um, you know, angered by the newly free African-Americans as well as all those conflicts going on. So again, Mardi Gras is the, the center of all these social forces um, you know, assert, trying to assert their dominance. Yeah. And to add to that too, in 1874, there was something called the battle of Liberty place, which was this um, battle between supporters of two different, like um, kind of like rival governments within Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, this took place um, in new Orleans itself. So th- there's a lot of, there's actually a lot of tension uh, going on uh, political and otherwise so the reconstruction era um there's you know like things don't stop after the civil war like there's a lot of like civil strife just kind of keeps going okay um and i want to read from actually this is from 1877 which is actually considered the last year of reconstruction this is on page 147 of the talent book this is kind of just like using a Mardi Gras, a Mardi Gras parade as your, your presentation as a sort of like political satire. So political events never stopped Mardi Gras again, but in 1877, Momus caused considerable excitement by presenting Hades, a dream of Mobus in this Dante-esque spectacle. Momus maskers appeared on their floats as denizens of hell who bore strong resemblances to the cabinet and other department heads of the government in Washington and to certain dignitaries and officials in Louisiana. Beelzebub was remarkably like Grant and as easily recognizable were Adramalich with the features of Secretary of State Hamilton Fish, Ball, who was certainly Sherman, Lucifer, who looked like Landelot Williams, Secretary of the Department of Justice, and dozens of others. What followed threatened for a time to be fairly serious. The most anger were the brash hats of the army, many of whom had been depicted. Never again, they asserted, would troops of the United States take part in a carnival parade. Not even an army band would be allowed to march with one. A high-ranking army officer told the massacre who had betrayed Beelzebub that if the identity of Beelzebub were ever discovered, he would shoot him personally. Washington protested against a display which insulted and professed to caricature the president, the general of the army, the ministers, members of the cabinet, and leading officials of the United States. Governor Francis T. Nichols of Louisiana finally apologized for Momus in a telegram to Washington and branded the satire as the act of a few private individuals entirely unauthorized and unknown and universally condemned and regretted. But among those maskers were among were some of the most prominent men of New Orleans, including Edward D. White, who years later became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States and was appointed by that office by President Taft, whose father had been cruelly caricatured in that Momus parade. <laughs> so I thought that was in, that was interesting using um, using the parade as a form of uh, political political satire. Yeah, there was another one. Um, there was a one that they did of uh, based around Darwin's Origin of the Species. I think also where they mocked politicians as as animals and had a lot of racist imagery. Um, I was going to share some of these pictures of some of the early floats. I mean, the the floats are really interesting because you got to think. You know, this is pre-mass media society. 
um, this would be quite the spectacle uh, to see stuff like this. And there's there's a lot of videos of the really early parades too, and this stuff really had an impact on people. And we're also I want to talk a little bit about um, if I ever cease to love here after we see the after we see these. So there's one with some kind of like dragon, a lot of mystical symbolism, and no that no doubt that comes from a lot of the the heritage of secret societies in America. Sure. Okay. There's the devil again. There's a lot of you definitely getting his uh getting his props. But yeah, there's I'd really encourage anyone to go check out, you know, all these all this stuff is really well documented. Really interesting, you know, it's like um in the in the you know free use of mythology and and um, these different themes, it's really surprising how how much more um, tolerant society was to mysticism, to mythology, to weird symbolism. It's just you know that's something that uh, we have definitely lost. Yeah, that's true. That's very, very true. So let's talk a little bit about If I Ever Cease to Love. Um, that's a song that is um, played every Mardi Gras. Um, I'm going to play, go ahead and play just a little bit of it. There are no, hopefully you can hear that. There are no, there are no lyrics, there are no lyrics. okay so this is this is um if i ever cease to love by which was uh, a song from a play called bluebeard from the 19th century how it becomes part of Mardi Gras is itself an interesting story. It has to do with uh, this gentleman right here, Alexis Romanov, who was the son of Alexander II, the Tsar of Russia. And he came to the United States in 1871 and 1872 to hunt buffalo. 
And somehow he ends up in New Orleans in 1871. He falls in love with this lady right here, Lydia Thompson, who you can see in this picture that I pulled that she is the star of star of Bluebeard. Okay, that's Lydia Thompson. Now, one of the songs is this song, If I Ever Cease to Love, which I guess at the time was not a jazzy kind of song, but was um, but was just like kind of a song from the, from the musical. She ends up in New Orleans uh, with this play, Bluebeard, and Alexis follows her down there and is able to participate in the Mardi Gras of the year 1871. So thus, that song ever since, If I Ever Cease to Love, has become part of Mardi Gras. And because it was a huge deal, the, you know, the son of the czar of Russia was hanging out with the, everybody in Mardi Gras. This was the first time that actually there was a king of Mardi Gras. And I want to read a little bit from this chapter where talent devotes a whole entire thing here. Uh, called Rex and the Romanoff, which he spells with an O-F-F. Um, so, there had never been a Mardi Gras parade in New Orleans that contained so many massacres as that first parade of Rex. A conservative estimate has placed the number at 10,000, and it is probable there were many thousand more. Composed of carriages, wagons, and marchers on foot, it stretched for a mile and a, more than a mile. Rex and his assistants gathered the maskers on Canal Street early in the afternoon, but it was three o'clock before the procession started from the clay statue near the riverfront. The parade moved down Royal Street from Canal Street with more and more maskers falling in behind as it passed, circled through the Vale Carré and returned to Canal, then up to St. Charles Street. Rex was Louis Solomon, a merchant and businessman, wearing purple velvet embroidered with rhinestones and a jeweled crown, his face painted but not covered with a mask. This first king of carnival rode on horseback, waving a hand in a purple glove as he passed his applauding subjects. He was followed by a bluff a white papier-mâché figure adorned with garlands and flowers and surrounded by butchers in white smocks and caps. Behind came carriages, mule-drawn vans and wagons, bands of music, horsemen and marchers. At the city hall, Rex stopped his horse and drew up close to the grandstand where Alexis stood beside the empty dais. They exchanged a champagne toast. Alexis bowed stiffly. Rex waved merrily and moved on. When the first band reached the city hall, there was a surprise for Alexis, for they were playing his favorite song. The one Lydia Thompson sang in Bluebeard, now transposed to March time. The Grand Duke did not smile, and no one knows what his reaction was, but band after band took it up as they passed, and then some of the people in the street began to sing it, adding a parody that was later said to have been written by Lydia herself. If I ever I cease to love, if ever I cease to love, may the Grand Duke ride a buffalo in the Texas rodeo. 
The Grand Duke stood perfectly still and said not a word to any of the dignitaries near him. So that's the origin of the song played every year at every Mardi Gras called If I Ever I Cease to Love. Uh, we I pulled stuff from archive.org. Not sure if we can use stuff from YouTube or not, but you can go on YouTube and you can hear the actual lyrics of the song. But uh, this is... And it's something that I've heard before. I have no idea what it was. So, but apparently it is incredibly famous and, and it has an historical reason. It all dates from this Russian, this Russian prince coming to the United States to hunt Buffalo, which and hang out in New Orleans for Mardi Gras, which I think helped inspire Rex himself. And now there's that King and has been that King of Mardi Gras Rex who. I believe meets with Comus every year. And mm-hmm. those two crews are considered the two elite crews of, of the Mardi Gras. Um, in Rex, you see a preview of other things and uh, some things that I'm going to explore for the members of the mystic crew um, in the, uh, the next uh hangout of the mystic crew i'm going to do a presentation on the mystic rulers of the mississippi and look at how this crew system of um the gulf uh actually inspires others uh to do similar celebrations places that were traditionally not uh did not celebrate mardi gras or similar festivities uh, so you can check that out in Mystic Rulers of the Mississippi. But Rex sets a precedent for what would become um, the way that they did the, the St. Louis Veiled Prophet Ball as well. And um, gonna, I'm going to show in that presentation how there's connections between these mystic societies in the Gulf, uh, up through Memphis and St. Louis, and how these uh, worked together to go around and visit other places to serve as this regenerating force. And I think that's the, one of the main takeaways um, from this is uh, ideas of generation and regeneration. These holidays themselves are a part of that. Uh, So if uh, you're in the mystic crew or you want to join, you'll get to see that presentation. Okay. Is there anything else that we want to hit on? Mardi Gras? Not at all. It's just fun. Uh, you know, like we said at first that, that, uh, you know, me and you do not come from a, a, a family background of really celebrating this or weren't really too familiar with this stuff. And it has a lot of cool, um, interesting history to it. Uh, we did, we did focus a lot on the elite aspects and Mardi Gras now is for everybody. So I think the people have kind of taken it back in a symbolic sense. Yeah. My dad today was talking about the uh, Mardi Gras Indians. Yeah. Yeah. Especially uh, African-Americans have demanded and took their place back in, in all these festivities uh, quite some time ago. And there is, um, you know, there's a lot of racism and classism and sexism in these elitist uh, these elitist balls and organizations that are continually being challenged. Um, you know, a lot of people are asking that uh, cities are actually, you know, supporting and subsidizing certain elements of these festivities. So, you know, at least uh, maybe, you know, city governments should not be 
supporting organizations that have, you know, discrimination built into them. Uh, so it's a lot of, a lot of um, continual uh, social struggles, you know, who, whoever, who control about who controls the party pretty much, you know? Right. Right. Well, if there's nothing else, we can go ahead and call it. Um, I, this is, uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed this. This is kind of a, a an unusual thing for us because you just get us next week. We will be back to guests uh, in, next week. So uh, thank you guys for joining in. And Sergio, you can tell them where they can become members of our Mystic Crew. You can go to patreon.com slash conspiranormal. At the $5 level, you'll have access to a new Patreon episode every week as a member of the International Association of Conspiranormalists. At the $10 level, you'll be a part of this mystic crew and get to hang out with us every month. Like I said, we're going to be having uh, special guests and presentations and cool stuff like that, give you access to us and people we have on the show and are associated with. And then at that highest level of elimination is the ancient circle of strange realities. That's $20 and up. You get a exclusive t-shirt that is not available to anyone else, nor available for purchase on the T public site where other t-shirts are. Uh, and you get a VIP experience at the strange realities conference, um, which will happen in some form or another or hybrid this year. We don't know exactly what's going on yet, uh, but we'll be announcing all that very soon. We're printing yeah, to we go right now. So yeah, come join we'll us at patreon.com slash conspiranormal. Absolutely. We are working on that. We're working on um, what we're going to do for Strange Realities 2021. I almost said 2020. Don't want to go back to that. And <laughs> we are going to do... Uh, we're looking at the lineup right now. That's the that's the next step, and hopefully we will have uh, start selling tickets next month. So, guys, we want to thank you so much for joining us. Uh, remember, uh, like, share, and subscribe, all that good stuff. Everything you always hear about podcasts all the time. Uh, you've uh, some conspiracy podcasts on YouTube. Go subscribe to it. We haven't gotten subscriptions in like an inter- an incredibly long time. So go check that up. And uh, that's it, guys. Just uh, happy Mardi Gras, everybody.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.